to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're in this season of Lent. Thank you, Jesse and Tyler. And um, this is our fifth Sunday in this. And, and um, I, w- I won't say you know who it was that I was talking to in the lobby, but uh, there was someone that said, so how long have you guys been doing this chairs backwards thing, you know? And I was like, oh, you guys haven't been here since then? I was like, this is the fifth Sunday of that. And have we really missed five Sundays? So anyway, sorry, guys, uh, wherever you're sitting. Uh, <laughs> But, but uh, here, here's why we're doing this, okay? It, it's, um, sometimes I think the setting of the service itself can help communicate something. And uh, Lent is a time to kind of say, whoa, shake you up from your normal uh, rhythms and kind of the things you take for granted and to say, all right, let's strip something back. That's one of the reasons we fast or give up something in Lent is to say, uh, okay, let's, let's, let's strip away some of the distractions or some of the things and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and remember his suffering and lower ourselves and... And so we thought, wouldn't it be something interesting here if we turned away from the stage, turned away from the band, faced the cross, I don't stand on a platform, we're all on level ground before the cross. So the first week we did this, everyone was pretty excited about it. You know, they're like, oh, well, this is so cool, oh, wow, you know. The second week, you know, it's people coming back, you guys came back, maybe you brought someone who hadn't been here yet, and you're like, look, look, isn't this cool, we're facing backwards, you know, but by the third week, I started to hear, you know, I just, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of this, and uh, I mean, not from any of you, per se, um, but just, ah, oh, this is really annoying, and I can't really see Glenn when he's talking, or I can't see the band, and I like the band, and, you know, and I do too, um, and so there's, it, it starts to get kind of weary, and you think, ah, oh, enough of this, let's end this, I want to say that that is precisely what we're meant to feel, because that is part of what Lent makes us do, is to say, how long, O Lord? And we're waiting, and we're longing, and there's something about the day that Easter arrives, and we can, oh, now we can sing, and now we can face. There's something about that building anticipation that makes us erupt in praise. Paul, the way he talks about this in Romans 8, talks about this, this day where all of creation itself is kind of groaning for the day when the sons of God will be revealed, which we know he's talking about this day when we get resurrected bodies, when Jesus returns, when everything's going to be set right. And so there's this longing. Now think about this. As much as we're sort of saying, oh man, backwards again, you know, now when I'm late, people see me come in and all this, you know, as much as we're inconvenienced by it and we don't really like it, imagine, remember, remember, think of the sorrow that's part of our life. Think of the the, the weariness that's part of living. Think of Pike's Peak out there itself groaning and longing for the day, that all of creation is saying, Jesus, bring Easter to the whole world, that what God did for Jesus by raising him up from the dead, he will one day do for all of us by raising us up and making us new and making earth and heaven new. So we're meant to sort of have this, oh, how long? Come on, is it over yet? And it's, going, it's, it's meant to sort of scratch that itch, touch that nerve rather of, of where all of us throughout life kind of feel like, Lord, I'm getting weary. 
but to remember that because this Easter happened, there's another great cosmic Easter, if you will, that's coming. Amen? We're people on the way, on the people on, with hope for this. Okay, so here we are. Now, we've been in this series on Luke uh, for this whole year, really. And again, I, I've lost count of what series number, part number, 17, 18. Uh, and um, this morning, we had a guest speaker on Sunday morning, so he really didn't do the Luke series, which is totally fine. That was part of the deal. So I kind of had some leeway for tonight to say, what, what do I want to do? And I felt like I wanted to stay with this Luke series and pick up a, a, a passage, a section that we didn't get to, to talk about at the end of Luke 7. So if you're turning in your Bibles, you can mark Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. That's going to be our text for tonight. A couple of years ago, I, uh, maybe three years ago or so, I decided to make it a goal of mine for both Holly and I. We, we decided that we were um, very poorly read in terms of the classics and uh, all the books that you know, you're supposed to have read in high school and college, we kind of didn't. Uh, as much, and uh, and so we thought we just this is just time to catch up on some classics, and so we, we read through some different ones. And a couple of years ago, I read uh, Great Expectations for the first time, and uh, and I, I, I'm going to say stuff that'll give away the plot, but you've had 150 years to read it or so, so just you know, spoiler alert, you know, if you can say that. But there's this, you know, the the book, the story is about an orphan named Pip, and it's about uh, him struggling through life and then kind of meeting Miss, the, the very strange Miss Havisham. And, and, uh, and then he inherits this fortune, and he's quite convinced that the source of his fortune is Miss Havisham. And he, he's convinced that she's uh, given him this, uh, you know, he's, he's about to inherit land. He's, he's, a, he's a gentleman with great expectations, which is a way of saying he's come into some money. He's about to uh, get rich. He's about to have some land and some property and all this stuff. And he's convinced that it's come from Miss Havisham because she wants him to marry uh, her daughter. Do you remember this? Any of you? Just ring a bell. You're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Okay. And, uh, and some of you are like, don't ruin the story. Wasn't this a movie? The movie was nothing like it. Um, so, so he goes through, he moves to London and he starts living pretty well and starts accruing these debts. And he's quite sure uh, that, that this is all going to go according to plan. And this is going to be great. And then he, all of a sudden he realizes that there's this convict, there's this criminal uh, that he once a long time ago, when he was a little kid, that he had helped, not because of pity, but more out of fear. And it turns out that this criminal is the source of his fortune. And this, this convict is the one that's kind of uh, uh, trying to, you know, m- maybe do this money thing and maybe somewhat in a shady way. And so Pip, the orphan, is unsure about, well, he's not unsure. He knows how he feels about this convict. And he's very uneasy about saying, wait, 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 you? You're the source of my fortune? Wait, 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 you're the one that I'm beholden to? You're the one that I'm indebted to? No, no, that can't be. And all of a sudden, the rest of the book is this amazing kind of page-turning thing because you're trying to figure out, okay, what's what's he going to do? How does this resolve? And I don't remember enough of it to tell you that. But the, the, it was really good. It was really good for a book written in the 1850s. But, but, but the, point is, the point is this, is you begin to look at someone differently when you realize who they are and what they've done for you. Have any of you been at a situation, you know, you're, maybe you're at some office party or something, and, and your spou- you're the spouse, and your spouse works for this, you know, and you're just kind of talking, and then you realize, oh, you were talking to your spouse's boss, you know, and you didn't realize it, and then you're thinking back, 
oh, what did I say to them? You know, did I say anything incriminating? Did I say, yeah, my wife hates her job. Like she says her boss makes her work long. And then you realize, ah, that's her boss. You know, there, there are these moments where we treat people a certain way and then we find out who they are and say, uh-oh, uh-oh, maybe I should have said that or maybe I should have said this. And this is kind of the background here is, is Jesus has been invited for dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon's, he, he, you know, he's trying to figure out who is this Jesus. Is he a prophet? Is he uh, uh, really the Messiah? Is he a good teacher? Is he just sort of the next big thing? Who is this guy? Now, we've talked about this on Sunday night. You remember, a good devout Jew, what was their big hope in the first century? Their hope was that God would bring the age to come. He would usher in the promised age, that there was going to be this age that dawned, that began, that would finally be when God would deliver Israel and destroy Israel's enemies and, and finally you know, put everything right. And so there was this hope that, okay, remember the promises in Isaiah and remember what you said here and remember what you said here. And so now are you really going to do it? Now, the Pharisees were this group of people that made it their goal in life to say, all right, it was our disobedience that got us in trouble the first time. It was our unfaithfulness that sent us as a nation into exile. And in a way, we're still living in exile because we're being oppressed by Rome and all this stuff. And so the Pharisees, they, they kind of functioned on this premise of, of, look, maybe if we can be obedient enough, we can pull the magic crank. We can get God to do what he said he was going to do. And if it was our disobedience last time that got us in trouble, maybe we can be good enough this time to make God act. And none of us have ever thought that way, I'm sure. But certainly we can imagine what it must be like to think of God that way, to think, okay, maybe if I do this and do this and do this, I'll get God to act. So we've talked about how we don't want to immediately villainize these Pharisees and see them as, oh, yeah, bad guys, you know, be, be proud people or whatever. And so why Simon's having Jesus over to his house for dinner, uh, we, could, we could speculate on a number of different things. We could say, well, maybe he was just, maybe it was a setup. Maybe this is another Pharisee trap. But we don't get that sense from this story. We get the sense that Simon is, he's investigating this. He wants to know, is Jesus a prophet. You remember where we are in Luke's gospel. We've read a number of the stories here. In fact, in Luke 7 itself, just earlier in this very chapter, they say about Jesus after he raises the widow's son. Do you remember what they say about Jesus? A great prophet is here. Surely God has come to visit his people. And maybe Luke is telling us these stories in this order to make us think, okay, the word is out. There's a buzz about Jesus. People are tweeting about him. This could be the one. This could be God's special agent visiting us to redeem us. And so Simon, he wants to know, hey, look, if this is him, if he's the one, I'm going to get in on this. And so Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we'll pick it up. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And then when a woman of that town who was a sinner learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with perfumed oil. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Let me stop for a moment and say this. Simon maybe responds this way because, again, here's that word again, the prophet. So you have to imagine that maybe Simon in the back of his mind is saying, okay, so those people over there in that town say that he's a prophet. I'll be the judge of that. So Jesus is coming over and he's like, you know, like quizzing a magician or whatever, you know, like, okay, so what card am I holding now? You know, it's that kind of a game. And he's thinking, okay, so if you really are a prophet, oh, he can't be a prophet because he would have known. He would have known who this woman is. And so Simon thinks that Jesus doesn't know who this woman is. Not only does Jesus know who the woman is, he knows what Simon's thinking. This is so amazing because Simon doubts, oh, Jesus, he doesn't even know who this woman is. It doesn't really require much prophetic insight to have picked up on that. If he could have just been socially in touch on, you know, Jerusalem Facebook or something like that, he would have known. But Jesus not goes, he one-ups it. Not only does he know who the woman is, he knows what Simon's thinking. And so Jesus answered him. I love this. He answers his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Stop here for another moment. Not only does Jesus know who the woman is, not only does Jesus know Simon's thoughts, Jesus knows Simon's own sin. Here's Simon who thinks, oh, Jesus, you're, he can't really be a prophet. You don't know who this woman is. And maybe kind of underneath the surface, Simon's also thinking, Jesus, I bet you don't really know what's in my heart. And Jesus shows that he knows something about what Simon's thinking, but he begins to expose what's in Simon's heart. You all are probably familiar with this, but you could guess this. It's, this, it's the culture of the day that when, the, when you bring a guest into your home, you offer them water for their feet because they've been walking around in the dusty streets all day in their sandals. And so you help them because chances are the table that they're, they're, they're at, it's, it's not the table with chairs, it's the table down where you lay, recline at a rug, you know, and you're kind of leaning down and eating like this. And so nobody wants stinky feet at the table, you know? It's, it's a kind of a big deal to make sure your guests are taken care of and help them wash their feet, get the dirt off of it. And he's saying to Simon, look, you didn't even give me just normal water. She's using the water of her tears to wash my feet. And, and if you were having an honored guest to your home, you would anoint their head with oil and give them a kiss on the forehead or the cheek and just say, oh, welcome, you're my brother. Welcome into my home. You would do this sort of normal hospitality. And yet you didn't do it, but look what this woman does. She anoints my feet. 
She's kissing my feet. You won't even do the expected social norms. She's doing the most outrageous form of honor. Does that make sense? He's saying to Simon, you're, you're, you're missing it. You're not even being a good host. And maybe this is a way, this is a way for Jesus to call Simon out on a, on a certain kind of pride in his heart. What kind of a host invites someone to their house that should be the honored guest and you sort of treat them like, I mean, what, would you do this? You know, have someone over, hey, come on over. I really want to celebrate. It's your birthday today. Come on over to my house. And then they come and you say, well, here's the eggs and the flour. Make yourself a cake. Did you bring your own meal? It's, it's this sort of faux pas. It's this social violation. And Jesus is saying, Simon, I see through it. I see through what you're doing. You're, you're missing out on the social norm because there's something, some kind of reservation in your heart. But look, where you wouldn't even do the normal expected thing, she's done the unthinkable honoring thing. You wouldn't kiss my cheek, she's kissed my feet. You wouldn't pour oil on my head, she's wasting perfumed oil on my feet. See the contrast Jesus is making? And then he goes on and he says this, Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. Thus she loved much, or therefore she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In many ways, this story is a picture story of the gospel itself. You see a couple characters that are familiar characters. In fact, later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus will tell his, one of his most famous stories of a father with two sons. We, we know this story as the story of the prodigal son. And if you think about the characters in that story, you have a gracious, forgiving God, you have a clearly broken sinner, and you have the one who's self-righteous. These three characters are in this story as well. You see a Savior who's offering and announcing forgiveness, and then you have a woman who knows her brokenness, knows her sinfulness, and then you have a man who's saying, well, I don't know. I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. This story is is a microcosm story. It's a picture. It's a portrait of the gospel itself. One of the things Luke has made it clear in his gospel so far is that Jesus came announcing the kingdom, but not quite in the way that they were expecting. Not only in the sense that it wasn't this upheaval of Rome, but you remember the verse when he quotes Isaiah 61, and Matthew read it during worship, Luke 4. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, what's the phrase he leaves out? The day of vengeance. Jesus, why'd you leave that out? Because he's come announcing favor. He's come announcing forgiveness. He's come announcing this good news. And for many, they were saying, wait, no, this can't be. Wait, you're forgetting something. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the anointed one. I am the one you're waiting for. But I'm here announcing the gracious forgiveness of God. In fact, I'm going to make a way for it through my own death on the cross. You can write this verse down and look at it later. We're going to skip it for the sake of time. But Luke 24, 46 through 48, and Jesus says, he says, look, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead 
on the third day and repentance of the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. Jesus is saying this. This is part of why I'm here. To announce forgiveness and to die for the sake of the sins of all. When you think about this story, I think one of the first things I think of is this. That forgiveness is not anonymous. Forgiveness is not an anonymous gift. It's not God as a secret Santa dropping something in our inbox saying, if you're forgiven, bless you, out of here, don't know who it's from. But that when God announces forgiveness, it has a face. It's the face of Jesus himself. God's forgiveness to us is not this anonymous gift of like, oh, yeah, hey, yeah, all right, yeah, for you, for you. It's this personal thing. It's Jesus coming and saying, look, I am here. I'm the one. You are forgiven. When I think about us and this story, and I've been thinking all week about this, uh, I think... um, very often, you know, as I'm going through the week and meeting with people and having coffee and lunch and different people, I think, how, how does this text, how do we enter this text? How do we let this text enter us? And one of the things I've been thinking about is who we are in the story. Who are we in this story? How do we see ourselves? Which person are we? Maybe, at the heart of it, we're Simon. Maybe we're the guy or the person who says, you know, Jesus is in our midst, and yet we don't honor him. Maybe we're the person who said, yeah, I've kind of been around this. I'm here, and Jesus is, is here, present in our lives, and yet... We find a way to keep him at arm's length and say, I don't know about you. Are you really this? And, uh, and you're holding something back much the way Simon was. Still evaluating, still deciding, still trying to say, well, maybe we're him. Maybe there are ways where I am Simon, where Jesus is in my house, in my heart, in my home, in the place where I live, and yet I'm the host that doesn't pour oil on his head. Maybe I'm the poor host of of the Messiah and saying, okay, he's here, but I'm not really going to give it all to you, Jesus, because I'm just not sure and I'm holding back. Maybe I've been too confident of my own track record. You know, I um, don't know if you had this experience or not, but if you grew up in church, no doubt you've been through several testimony time uh, services or small groups and and I used to struggle with this because I don't really have a testimony, you know. Uh, I was a good kid and uh, grew up in a Christian home. And uh, when my parents would scold me for doing something wrong, I would tear up and say sorry right away, you know. So I just don't have much of a rebellious uh, part of my story. And so there would be times when our youth group, they would try to tell us to, you know, like share the gospel and, and witness to others. And, and so different ones in my youth group would, would take turns and they'd stand up and they'd give their story of how they came from a Buddhist family and then they started to believe in Jesus and then now that they had faith in Christ, their family shunned them. And I thought, that's amazing, you know. 
My parents are Christians. Like, they love it. When I read my Bible, they like, give me an extra helping of mashed potatoes. You know, I mean, I, it's like, I don't really have this. I haven't endured this thing, you know. And, <laughs> and yet, maybe it's that that makes me like Simon. Maybe it's because of that that I sort of feel like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's been pretty okay, pretty good. Maybe, maybe that's why I'm holding Christ at bay or holding my perfume and my oil and my kisses from the Savior's feet because I'm, I'm pretty okay. I'm good. I'm all right. But maybe when you think of this story right away, you hear these words and you think, I know who I am. I'm a woman. I'm well aware of what I've come through. I'm well aware of what I've come from. I'm well aware of the messes. I'm, I'm, I am well aware of my mistakes. I, I, I know what I've done. The remarkable thing is whether we're Simon or whether we're the woman, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows the thoughts in Simon's heart. He's fully aware of how Simon missed it. And he was well aware of who the woman was. In some sense, when we stand before Christ, we have to remember that he knows. He knows. He knows what's going on in your heart and in your mind. And there's no point in hiding this or trying to put on this front or this face because he knows, but more than just the fact that he knows, he forgives. More than just, oh, well, Jesus, yeah, okay, well, glad you know, but that he comes announcing this forgiveness. To be clear, Jesus says in verse 50, it's your, to the woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Faith in God is what allows us to receive God's forgiveness. Uh, it, it's not, uh, you know, it's not, yeah, well, I've sort of changed my life or I've done this. or that. It's this recognition of who Christ is and says, okay, look, I get it. You're the one. You're the one. I have faith. I'm throwing myself at your feet. In fact, if you were to say, give me a visual for what faith is, Glenn. I mean, I think a lot of times I think of the cliff thing, jumping off the edge of the cliff or the Indiana Jones thing, you know, stepping out and the steps appear, or the, the ladder, you know, the bridge appears. But, but I wonder if this is a better image for faith. What is faith in Jesus? Maybe it's throwing ourselves at his feet. What does it mean? Maybe faith in God looks like throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus and crying and kissing his feet with, with our tears and pouring out our best and saying, I believe that you're the one. And it's faith in God that allows us to receive God's forgiveness. And it's our love for God that is the response to His forgiveness. It's our love for God that is the way we respond to His forgiveness. And not the other way around, necessarily. It's not love that earns the forgiveness or allows, you know. Clearly in this story, the woman shows her faith not by a remarkable mental decision, or signing a card, as okay as all of that may be. It's a desperate act, admission of her need. And somewhere in that moment, there's this mingling of faith 
and love. Yes, she believes. And because she knows she's been forgiven, she begins to love. She loves with this lavishness, this outrageous response. I want to say for us that the point is not, okay, well, if, if you've been forgiven, you know, Jesus says, well, he, to one, the one who's been forgiven little, they love little. I suspect that Jesus' point is not to say, oh, Simon, don't worry about it. Your response is pretty good because you haven't been forgiven very much. I think Jesus' point to Simon is it's not about if you've been forgiven little or been forgiven much. It's whether you realize how much you've been forgiven of. Do you see it? Do you see that all of us, all of us are at this place in need of forgiveness? Whether you're Simon with a good track record, pretty good effort, pretty good life, whether you're the woman, there's no point even trying to save face. You, you don't mind crashing into a dinner party and weeping because you know, I got nothing left to lose. The point here is not so much, well, you don't have much to be forgiven, but to say, do you see it? Do you get it? Do you see Jesus and what he's done for you? I think something happens when we do. I think when we see God's outrageous forgiveness, we respond with outrageous love. I think when we, when we glimpse it, when we realize what this means, how amazing this, this word, forgiveness, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven that we respond with some sort of outrageous love. Now, those of you that have been around New Life a while, you know that I spent the bulk of my first eight years or so here uh, as a worship leader. And uh, I've taught on this text a number of times, but I I always taught on it in the context of worship. Uh, And to be honest, I always taught on it in the context of a worship service. And so I've said many times, okay, look, you know, come on. If you realize what you've been forgiven of, then you would really worship. And in my mind, that looked like raising both hands instead of one, you know. You know it's like when the song's pretty good, you're like this, and you're really fired up, it's like this. But when it's like, woo, you know, you're like, you know. But, but, and, I, and I sort of thought, okay, come on, maybe, maybe if we just really saw God's forgiveness, we would just, woo, shout, and some sort of, passionate demonstration and I used to teach this passage thinking of a worship service and to a fault thinking only of a worship service thinking about okay come on because this is how we Jesus is here let's go let's worship him but my dear wife often helps me think beyond these things my wife is from Iowa you know she's from a good German Lutheran family if you've ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, my family's a bit like the Greek family, and her family's a bit like his family, you know? We joke about this, and her family's very calm, very level-headed, you know, like, when they're really pumped about something, it looks like this. Oh, wow, you know? <laughs> and yeah, and my family is just the opposite, everything, emotions are on the sleeve, you know? Not that I get that from anywhere. 
was, Holly and I were talking about this text earlier this week. And she said, well, you know what? What does this really look like beyond the worship service? Because if we say that outrageous love looks like shouting or dancing or clapping or raising two hands, that's wonderful. That's not untrue. That, may be cer- that certainly may be true. But if we confine it to that, then we could all come in here and be extravagant worshipers and then go out there and live in a very disconnected way. I wonder if the perfume is a picture of what we have. Your job, your time, your stuff, your thoughts. I wonder if our perfume, if we could ask the question, what are you saving? What are you keeping from Jesus? Is there a part of our lives where we've said, well, yeah, I don't know if he, I don't really want to surrender that. I, I mean, I just, you know, I'm happy to love him and give my offering and do this, but, but this is kind of my space, my area my thing. And I wonder if there are ways that our perfume-pouring acts of extravagance really looks like bringing every part of our life in to say, Jesus, you're the one who's forgiven me. May my love for you be part of why I go to work today and do a good job. May I work hard today at my job, not because my boss is so awesome or I love being a barista at Starbucks. May I do this because I'm pouring this out for you. Maybe it looks like saying, okay, okay, well, uh, you know, I'm taking care of the kids today. This is really not my idea of spending a day. You know, this is stressful. But, But Lord, as the sun rises this morning, Spirit, give me a picture of Jesus so that every act of service today is really me pouring out this perfume in love for you. Is there a way to say that every part of our life, there's nothing excluded, there's nothing kept out, there's nothing that we're saving like Simon, who Jesus is in the house, but Simon's keeping back his oil, but maybe we're the kind of people that say, okay, well then help me. Where are the perfumes that I have in my life? What's the oil that I have. What is it that I have? Okay, okay, well, at my job today. Okay, at this conversation today. Okay, at my small group tonight. Or okay, the way that I interact with someone tonight. Maybe even with our money for one another. Maybe in all these different ways we can say, okay, Jesus, nothing is off limits from you. It all gets poured out. It all gets spent. Nothing is reserved. Nothing is off limits to you because this is how you've loved us. I think that's a question that we're going to need to keep chewing on. It's not a question that we say, okay, everybody bow your heads, write down in your journal five ways you're going to live differently this week. No. Neither do I think this is the sort of thing that we just, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, let's do it. Because it's easy to kind of fall in this, well, Jesus did this for me, so i got to do this back. You know, I think I always laugh, you know, with a little sort of, when I think of the Keith Green song, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and you can't even get out of bed, you know. 
wow, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than your Sundays and Wednesday nights because if you can't come to me every day of the week, don't bother coming at all. Wow. Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. You know, it's like, whoo. I mean, that's a good way to fill the altars, you know. <laughs> Guilting you into this is not the goal. My prayer is that the Spirit of God gives us eyes to recognize who is in our midst. That Jesus is there in the car with us as we drive to work. That Jesus is there in our workplace as we're working. That Jesus is there in our classrooms. That Jesus is there at home when we're changing diapers and doing dishes. That Jesus is there and Jesus has poured out his outrageous forgiveness for us. And so may the Spirit of God flood our hearts so we can pour out every ounce of every minute, of every day, in love for him. Let's pray. May we know the graciousness of our Father. May we know the boundless generosity of our Father. May we receive the forgiveness of Christ. To know the deep inside every stain, every act, every thought, every pride, every self-reliance, every sin, every mess, every mistake. That Jesus says to you, your sins have been forgiven. May we believe it. May we know it. And may the Spirit of Christ rise up in our hearts spread it out in our hearts spread out this love like Paul said in Romans may the spirit of God spread abroad in our hearts this love and may God give you the grace to pour out your life your moments, your days your service your work to pour it out in love for Jesus. On days where you don't love your job, may you still love Jesus and work that way for Him. On days where you don't love your life or your kids or your spouse, may we still pour ourselves out because Jesus is in the room. Jesus is in our midst. May the Spirit of God fill you with His grace, with His strength, with eyes to see and recognize our Savior. Willingness to spend ourselves to hold nothing back in love for Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.